The views and opinions expressed on the Untold History Revealed podcast are solely those of the individual stating them and are not necessarily those of the Untold History Revealed owners. Now sit back and grab a cup of coffee or tea as we discuss some moments in history that may have been untold or forgotten. Another episode of Untold History Revealed starts now. Hello, gang, and welcome to another episode of Untold History Revealed. I am your host, Sean Donnelly. And I'm your co-host, Marianne Donnelly. So for those of you out there who just come across our podcast, let me give you a little background of who we are and why we're doing this and what this is all about. Uh, we are the owners of Dark Shadow Ghost Tours and PanicD.com. And throughout the years, my wife and I, my beautiful bride... Yeah, you can't see oh, her right now. He's definitely looking to get something. <laughs> uh, we've done a lot of research and investigations and things of that nature for our other websites and hobbies, businesses, whatever you want to call them, and uh, put together a lot of information, some of it historical, some of it forensic-related, some of it paranormal. Um, so we got a lot of information. We decided, just as a hobby, we would start this little podcast and... We're in our second season. Took a little break there for a while. Came back. Um, and we're in the process of putting out a series about aviation and some mysteries and tragedies that surround aviation. Our last podcast was about um, the uh, documentary we saw on uh, the History Channel about Amelia Earhart and how they found some... Uh, new evidence that uh, was pretty uh, compelling that led to what happened to her and where she ended up. So uh, if you're interested in that, go back and catch the uh, last episode. But uh, this one we're talking about, I think I titled this uh, Charles Lindbergh, uh, A Hero with a Tragedy. Ooh. Ooh. Okay. Um found a great quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald that says, Show me a hero and I will write you a tragedy. So, kind of playing on those words there a little bit. And uh, we're going to be talking tonight about uh, Charles Lindbergh. So, this is one of the cases that you uh, work with with your kids, is it not? It is. Okay, so you're going to hit probably on the tragedy part more than... Absolutely. Yeah. That's what else would I teach my children? Uh, remember, yeah. for those of you who don't Creepy know, stuff. or for those of you who don't know, I teach forensic science and biology. So uh, I don't actually teach history. So I don't. I don't actually teach the, you know, Charles Lindbergh right. hero section. I do <clears throat> the the tragedy. Portion. And I'm not a teacher, but I am in education. I'm the tech coordinator for the school district, and uh, but uh, both of us are big time in the history yes and uh, i think we missed their calling probably should have been history teachers i don't know you kind of like the forensic stuff i like the forensic stuff i like history more than i do computers but i've been doing technology for ever <laughs> too late to change yeah. now yeah but okay well anyways so um ready to get started absolutely okay so um for those of out there who do not know who Charles Lindbergh was, 
Um, and about the time period in not only just the United States, but all over the uh, world, um, we're talking about the mid-20s, which um, aviation was a, a big thing uh, in the world. Um, the early 1900s period were big for this. Well, yeah, you had the first flight in 1903. and um, Or did we? Or did we, yeah. Ooh. Ooh, spoiler <laughs> alert. <laughs> um, but, you know, after that... Uh, we mentioned in the last podcast that um, you know there were flying circuses and barnstormers and, and things like that where aviation was was a big thing and um, a lot of records were set a lot of firsts were set um, you know that kind of thing and, um, and Charles, a lot of prizes were given yes yes a lot of fortunes were won and a lot of lives were given as well but uh I don't know if you know this. Do you know when Charles Lindbergh was born? I don't. He was born in Detroit, Michigan, February 4th, 1902, one year before the famous airplane. Well, I guess we should clarify that. It was the first practical engine-driven airplane flight of the Wright brothers, if you want to be politically correct. (laughs) Um, But yeah, he was born, he was a year old when that happened quite interesting and uh, I don't know if we should say Close, it now but closer to two he passed away in 74 that was two years before you were born true yeah so he was almost two when the Wright brothers had their flight and mm. I was gonna be born two years after he died yeah he was uh, 72 years old when he passed away living in Hawaii um, but a little bit about his life he uh, graduated first in his class from the U.S. Army Air Force School. Did you know that? I did not. Uh, he was in the military, and he um, became one of the um, airmail pilots and really got into aviation big time. Um, mm-hmm. This was a second nature to him. And, and the thing about Charles Lindbergh was not only was he a great pilot, but he understood the mechanics behind aeronautics and the engines and things like that, which made him kind of stand out uh, and be a pioneer in aviation because he knew how to control the airplane to make it do things that others couldn't figure out. And I'll talk about that later. This may go into two episodes. I don't know because you have, I'm looking over and you have pages of notes. <laughs> but. Um, <clears throat> At the end, I want to talk about, um, like, his contribution to, that was, I think, more important than what he was famous for, but um, the knowledge that he had, what's the words I'm looking for? You have no clear, you're just looking at me like, what's he talking about? The knowledge that he had on how to fly the airplane and and things um, is what made him... stand out in aviation. I'll I'll talk about that later, maybe, if I remember. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But anyways, um, like we said, or like I said, because you're just sitting there, um, like I said earlier, um, aviation was a big thing. There was a lot of money that was being offered for 
first flights and things like that nature. And there was a, there was a, um, I don't know what do you call it, a bounty or a purse or whatever that was put up for the first flight to go from either the United States to Paris or Paris to the to oh from New York, New to, York Paris to Paris or Paris to New York. Right. Either way, the first pilot to do that, um, they were offering twenty five thousand dollars, and this was. 1925, 27, you know, around that time. Um, I just did it. You know how I like to do it. You like to do the money. What's that really worth now? $350,000 today. So that was was a big deal. That's pretty sizable. Yeah. Hey, you know. Um, And I guess if you're somebody in the aviation, you're going to, like, go after that because that's, like, life-changing money, you know. Um, So that's... One of the things that that uh, he did, he was watching all these uh, pilots attempting to do this. They they tried with multiple engine aircraft. They tried with multiple passengers. Um, okay, so there were several attempts. There's a couple that I want to point out that are kind of important. One of them was in September of, of 26. Okay, I think it was September 21st. Um, this was Funk. Um, he was a um, an aviator from France. Um, him and his co-pilot was it Curtis or Curtin? Curtin. Curtin. Um, they attempted to take off from Roosevelt Field in New York. They had uh, two other people on the, the plane with them: the uh, uh, a mechanic and a uh, aviator. And one of radio them was operator. radio operator. One of them was Russian. Okay, um, but. They had five, or I'm sorry, 50 barrels of gasoline on this plane. It was a three-engine plane. And, you know, all these guys that tried this, they got backers that put up money to pay for the plane and the flight and all this other stuff. But this particular flight, why it's important, why I'm mentioning it, first of all, it didn't get off the ground. It was too heavy, okay? And uh, it crashed and caught on fire, and uh, the two pilots got out but the 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 russian and whichever one he was and the other guy they died during the crash but um roosevelt field is what's important here okay okay um then um there were others but in this total attempt there was actually six people just for this particular award you know that lost their lives trying to do this i mean this was dangerous stuff and even the um I forgot to mention the uh, air mail. They had a 75% fatality rate. Awesome. <laughs> so could you imagine, hey, yeah, I'm going to go work for them. But, you know. I, Sign me up. Yeah, you know. I don't know. But anyways, so these guys are pushing the envelope and they're trying new things and, you know, that kind of stuff. But you would think, you know... We're putting 50 gallons of fuel on this plane. You know, maybe we should test out the weight, and, you know, that kind of stuff. Is this thing going to get off the ground? Just 50 gallons or... or 50 barrels, oh. I'm sorry. 50 barrels. I was going to say, 50 gallons isn't going to get you very far. <laughs> 50 barrels. Okay. Um, and the plane was big and, and, you know, it just didn't get off the ground. Okay, so fast forward a little bit. Lindbergh actually studied that crash, okay, and he learned what to do. He helped design and build the Spirit of St. Louis, the plane that he flew. 
and he made modifications. He made the decision, we're going to go with single engine. It's just going to be me. Um, which everyone was trying to talk him out of that, even his backers. Um, which, by the way, his backers came out of St. Louis, which is why they called it the Spirit of St. Louis. Makes sense. Um, the other flight, and I forgot to mention too, they didn't insure the flight. So the, these guys are out of the ball game. They're like broke. You know what I mean? Nobody's going to back them again. You already tried once. <laughs> you know, lost everything. But um, So he studied that crash and designed the Spirit of St. Louis. Now, the Spirit of St. Louis, the plane was stripped down, and basically it was a flying fuel can. Nice. There were no type of... Um, no you know, amenities. No amenities whatsoever. <laughs> it had a seat for him to be in, and the rest of it was fuel. Okay? It carried 450 gallons of, of fuel. Barrels? Gallons. Gallons. 450 gallons of fuel. This leads back to what I was saying, that he knew how to fly an airplane and how to stretch out that fuel consumption. You know, what to do, like, you know, climb and then cut down on the engines, the reserve on the fuel and glide and, you know, things like that, which later on, which I'll mention if we get time, that helped out the military. So... But anyways, okay, so about a year later, he was ready to do some testing and, and everything with the Spirit St. Louis. I'm about ready to go, that type of thing. And there was another flight that took off from Paris to New York. And they their, uh, that aviator was an ace during the, the war and, you know, well-renowned. He had a navigator with him. They took off from Paris and never heard of again. So, two more fatalities. Okay. The next day, he said, that's it, I'm ready to go. Now, they built the Spirit of St. Louis in San Diego. So, he left San Diego and flew to St. Louis. Stopped over, paid respect to the, you know. To the guys paying the, the bill. The guy putting up the bill. Probably gassed up maybe a little bit. And flew from St. Louis to New York. That flight... He set a, a record for a transcontinental flight from San Diego to New York. It was 21 hours, that flight. So when he gets to New York, there were two other competitors that were going to take off. All right, so now there's all these things that, you know, if that first, that flight that I was talking about that crashed during takeoff, if that would have worked if the one coming from Paris were to work, or if these two other guys that were going to take off from New York that were there when he was there, one was having squabbles with the backers. Hey, and that happens. Yeah. Um, let's see, I have their names. See, the other two pilots that were going to take off about the same time. Now, what happened was is when Lindbergh landed in New York, there was a heavy fog. So it grounded all three planes. Okay. Um, Bird was having problems with his backers. They okay, were squabbling so back and forth. Okay. okay, Chamberlain was the other one, and he was having problems with the plane, like the, the testing and stuff with the plane. It wasn't something wasn't right. So one of those mechanical it issues. Was mechanical. We we'll have a little bit right. of a mechanical issue. Oh, right. and so we're going to delay us a little bit so we don't have a little bit of a crash. Exactly. <laughs> so the night of May 9th, they got word, you know, weather, the weather's going to clear, and that's when Lindbergh says, boom, I'm ready to go. Let's go. And they're trying to talk him out of it because he's been up. He's got to fly this. 
by himself and stay awake. That's what they were concerned about. Is this guy's going to be get over there, you know, get up in the air and fall asleep, and then we'll never hear from him again? You know, Uh-oh, so they're trying not to, another one. Yeah, they're trying to say, hey, get some rest, whatever. Nope, I'm ready to go. Let's do it. So May 10th, 7.52 a.m., he takes off from Roosevelt Field, okay? He took off right before that crash site. Like, he just hovered over, like, inches over the plane that crashed. Okay, and just cleared the telephone wires by 20 feet <laughs> at the end of the runway. Oh, okay, that would so, have sucked. What's the word I'm thinking, like, not historically, but uh, a momentous occasion is he got farther than that other flight, and he did get off the ground. Because I'm sure that over, you know, that was overweight for that plane, you know, all that fuel. But anyways, um, the flight lasted... 33 hours, he landed in Paris, um, and then, you know, there are stops along the way where he's radioing in, check marks, you know, different landmarks he's saying, and that kind of thing, uh, I'm not going to get into details of the flight, but when he landed, he was awake for 55 hours. I can't stay awake for 16. <laughs> I know, but can you imagine, I, I guess just just riding on adrenaline and all that stuff and like I gotta be the first well he well he just he just finished being the first continental right so transcontinental Transcontinental. so he's all excited about that you know he wants to beat the other guys so he's got that pushing him I can I guess I can see it yeah um so what does that mean okay what does that mean for his life okay and 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 how United States looked at now he's like a, a national hero international hero he gets that money for that flight he also gets awarded the medal of honor because he was uh, military reserves okay he, he got out of the military and was in the reserves though as he was doing his uh, airmail uh, thing but um he was awarded the Medal of Honor, and they gave him a um, like a goodwill tour that, to go around the country, forty-four thousand miles. Ticker tape parades, and you know, in case you, you guys, you know, if younger kids are hearing it, it's like ticker tape parade. What does that mean? Well, you probably know it as confetti, okay. But back there in the day, all the stock and weather and news and everything used to come out on a machine called a ticker. And it would have tape, Paper. like an adding machine. Tape. Paper. Right. And then once it printed out what was on it, this stuff was garbage. It was so useless. what they would do is they would um, collect that stuff. And when you have something big that would have, you know, happen or a hero or something, they would give you a ticker tape parade. And they would throw that out of the, like in New York, they would throw that out of the sky rise and it'd be like confetti everywhere. Okay. I do have a, a, a fact about the ticker tape. Do you? 1,800 tons of 1,800 tons? Yes, at his that's parade. A, that's a lot. <laughs> 1,800 that is, tons. I, I'm, just, I'm just thinking of the poor maintenance people that had to clean all that up. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, he got the ticker tape parade. Um, he was flying around the world on this 44,000-mile campaign goodwill type thing, and... You know, it was a big deal for him, and 
he was he was kind of a reserved guy, kind of quiet and everything, but. Um, and he apparently got more reserved as time went on after his big, you know, popularity because he didn't really know who his friends were. Right. And he really only had a few true friends because he was worried that other people just liked him for his fame. Exactly. Um, however, while he was in Mexico, he met the Mexican ambassador to the United States. And that is where he met his future wife, Anne Morrow, who was the daughter of the Mexican ambassador from the United States. Was it love at first sight? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. She was probably dreamy. Oh, look, it's it's Charles Lindbergh. Well, from the uh, you know videos and articles and stuff that I've read, she seemed to be reserved too, like shy, timid, you know. So she wasn't swooning. No. <laughs> um, so that's basically how he became popular. So in um, 1929, they snuck off, actually. It was a private little ceremony. And they got married? They got married. They got married at the uh, Moreau estate um yeah so because of this they become very famous he's already famous now he's married this beautiful you know heiress basically right yeah he was six foot three blonde hair tall skinny so I'm sure he was like one of those eligible bachelor types that all the women swooned over that type of thing but uh, Anne Morrow nailed him. Yeah. Hooked him. Yeah, and and they become the lucky Lindy. And uh, he he's known as the Eagle. Yeah. And the Lone Eagle, or the, is it the Lone Eagle? I think. <clears throat> he had several different nicknames: Slim, Lucky Lindy, the Lone Eagle. Yeah, I know the military called him Slim. And I know when he was flying, he was known as the Eagle. Okay, so uh, that gives you kind of a background up to his marriage, I think, from there. Um, you know, so I'm not going to say every marriage, but some marriages lead into tragedy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, it like... Oh, oh gosh. That was a great segue. That was not a good segue. That was a terrible segue. That was, that was terrible so, segue. so mean. Oh, that was, so that was mean. a joke. It was a joke. So, eventually, they continue their happiness. And they're all so happy because now we have a little <coughs> baby. Charlie gets well, born. They waited a while before they released his name. Yes, I think it was like 15 days or something like mm -hmm. that. They didn't release his name. Little Char Charles Lindbergh Jr. was born, and um, he was the love of everyone. Everybody thought of him as their child, the nation's child, right? This is our hero's baby, and, you know, they're just... They're just loved by everybody. He's he's important. She's important. The baby's born. All this exciting things are happening. And then comes 1932. 
And unfortunately, on March 1st of 1932, the baby disappears. The baby is kidnapped. Now, I'm going to take you back a little bit here in history and let you know that kidnapping was not a major offense. You can kidnap somebody, ransom them, didn't matter. It was, a, it was like a local thing. It was no big deal. And actually, as a result of this kidnapping, we actually have the Lindbergh Law, which actually, for the first time, um, is put on the books a day after the Lindbergh baby is kidnapped. And they make it a federal offense. They make it a capital offense to kidnap anyone. Is it, is it considered a federal capital offense if they're taken across state lines? In, or just, just, in, just general? in general. Just in general. Yeah. It's a federal offense. Yeah. And so a lot of a lot of uh, children around this time period were being kidnapped Which is and why ransomed. You see a lot of times, kidnapping FBI immediately gets involved because it's a federal offense. Right. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of kids were being, you know, kidnapped and held for ransom at this around this time period. And now that it's Lindbergh's baby, yeah, it's a big deal. It's you know, because deal. they like, did not, they didn't have a good uh, rate of recovery of children. So a lot of these kids would be ransomed, and the police had, you know, they just had a bad track record of getting them back alive. So that plays into a a lot of the investigation of this as well, because this is our nation's baby, and Lindbergh knows these people suck at getting back kids. And so um, he... he, he really holds back a lot and keeps the police at bay, and he uses his fame to kind of run the investigation. So, anyways, um, it was March 1st of 1932. It was um, a Tuesday night. Um, the baby was up on the second floor in its crib, going to sleep. It's 20 months old. They're in their home that's not quite completed yet in Hopewell, New Jersey. Now, normally they weren't there. They weren't normally there on the weekdays. They only went out there on the weekends because, hey, the building's not done yet. It's not all finished. We're just going to use a little weekend retreat area every now and again. Um, And they were really spending all of their time in Englewood, New Jersey, um, at the Morrow Estate uh, while they were waiting for the house to get done. But for some reason, they go to um, their Hopewell home on that Tuesday. And uh, they put the baby to bed sometime after 8. And by 10 o'clock, the uh, child nurse, basically a nanny, um, Betty Gow, comes and goes, Oh my gosh, the baby's missing. And they go searching. So his wife Anne and the nurse Betty go searching all over this this um, nursery and they don't find the baby they don't find it they don't they just can't find the baby so um, eventually uh, Lindbergh goes in and he searches in the room and he finds an envelope just a plain envelope with no writing on it it's sealed shut and he says Oh my gosh! This is a this is the kidnapping note. My child's been kidnapped. So Lindbergh found it. So Lindbergh finds this. It's sealed shut. There's no writing on the outside of it at all. 
but he claims to the police that this is a kidnapping note and he refuses to let the police open it or do anything with it for over two hours while they find somebody to come and do fingerprinting on it. He requires the police to have that envelope fingerprinted, which they find none. But they do open it up, and it is, in fact, a ransom note. And this ransom note requests $50,000 for their child to be returned safely. Did you hear something? No, I, I thought I did. Go ahead. Oh, You're okay. Good. All right. So... Um, they request fifty thousand dollars to be to be given to them, and um, they don't really explain too much how they're going to get this fifty thousand dollars to them. But they have it laid out like I want this many in twenties and this many in tens, this many in fives, and we're gonna we're gonna get back to you later to you know tell us how to uh, how to deliver this money to us. So according to this, it said 25,000 in 20s, 15,000 in 10s, and 10,000 in 5s. So they were very specific. They were very specific. And something that eventually, you know, they obviously look at this note. uh, And I have my kids at school look at this note too. And uh, one of the first things that you notice is that the dollar signs for all of the money is written after the amount of the money, mm-hmm. um, which turns out to be the way apparently the Germans write money. So they write the numerical value and then the dollar sign. So they immediately start looking at this as being a, a German, an immigrant, somebody who, you know, is not. Weren't there misspellings? Yes, or something very like mi- Yes, there's okay. lots of them. They tell them not to involve the police. Of course. They didn't really know that till after they opened it up, after the police were already there. But, you know, um, police is spelled wrong and all. There, there are several misspellings. So they think it's somebody who is a German immigrant because it's not exactly spelled right. Um, it, it looks like somebody who does not have a wonderful command of the English language. All right, so anyways, they have this note. They looked around for it. Um, they... You know, they looked around at it and everything, and um, unfortunately, they have to wait until now the kidnappers get back to them for more information. They look around everywhere around the, the facility, the house, everything. They can't find this child anywhere, and so they know that it's definite, it's for real. And um, they, they're, on, they're on a waiting game now, and eventually they end up getting a series of 15 ransom notes. Really? Yes. Well, so I didn't know about that. When we okay. come back from right, break, so let's take a break and then we'll talk about, about some that. of these other ransom notes and some more of the some more of the process that we went through and maybe even some of the suspects. Ooh. Okay, well we'll be back shortly. So stay tuned. calendars, close your doors, and turn off all the lights. As twice a month, BTE Radio brings you a new episode of The Haunted Spotlight. Sean and Marianne Donnelly of Dark Shadow Ghost Tours dig deep into the archives of the Panic D database and take you inside a different location with each new episode. 
Learn the rich history and hear the paranormal claims of some of the most infamous and unsuspecting locations from around the country. Ever wonder what roams the property or lurks behind those closed doors? Curious about the true history of that creepy house that sits down the street? Want to know what evidence a paranormal investigation group may have captured? Then find out every other Sunday and tune in to BTE Radio for another chilling episode of The Haunted Spotlight, if you dare. <laughs> okay, we are back. and We're talking about uh, Charles Lindbergh. Actually, this is titled A Hero with a Tragedy. And... Uh, you did the hero portion. I did the hero part. And, and I'm you're starting just to starting to talk about, yeah. And I just want to be clear about the Lindberghs. I mean, we're talking like almost United States royalty here. You know if we mean? had something that was royalty, they, they yeah. might be it. Yeah. Um, you know, as everyone's heard of the Kennedys and how big they were in our country. Mm-hmm. I mean, he yeah. was, Lindbergh was just as big. And uh, there was a quote that was talking about this case, but... You go ahead. You mentioned there was several other uh, ransom notes, and I'll, I'll find this quote, uh, quote while you're talking about. But go okay, ahead. all right. So, um, they, as I mentioned right before break, there ended up after that first one, there were actually 15 ransom notes altogether that were sent, um, and most of them were not even to Charles Lindbergh. Most of them were to his go-between that came up uh, a couple notes in. Um, but he does get his second <coughs> note. Um, Lindbergh gets the second note in the mail. So now if I was looking at it today, that would be like mail fraud too. Um, but he gets this second one. It's postmarked March 4th, which is a couple days after the, you know, three days after the baby is kidnapped they write this second note he gets it on the 6th okay and it's it's postmarked from new york and in this note there's several really key things that i look at um and one of them is that they decide hey we don't want fifty thousand dollars anymore we now want seventy thousand dollars so they want seventy thousand dollars and they tell us or they tell the Limbergs in the note that they want this increase because they needed to add another person to their gang. Hmm. They actually mentioned They that didn't the mention gang, but they added they mentioned they need to add another person. And the reason that they need to add this other person is they may need to keep the baby longer than expected. Hmm. And they state specifically we will feed him according to the diet. What diet? That's my question. What diet? Huh. So it's almost as if this extra person that that they're adding or one of them somehow knows about a specific diet for little Lindbergh, which I'll get to a little bit later when we talk about some of the suspects. Yeah, I see this going into Do you? two different I, segments, I'm going to try really hard not to. This is getting deep. This is getting deep. <clears throat> In this note, they also mention that they've been preparing this for years. So they've been planning to kidnap Lindbergh's child. And you have copies of these notes? Um, they are all available online at multiple different sources. So I have them that my kids. I have them that my kids look at. 
Um, and there's all kinds of other sites too, but you can actually download all of them. Um, and I have my kids download them and look at them while we're doing handwriting analysis. And one of the big things is with this series of 15 notes, the handwriting changes. It looks as if multiple people have written them. So that's, that's something that is is very interesting because the court system says there was only one writer. Well, only one got... And only one person ended up getting convicted and killed for the crime. So I found that quote, and it said that, uh, well, this was uh, by H.L. Mitchin. He was a newspaper writer, and he said that he called they called the kidnapping... Um, and trial, the biggest story since the resurrection. <laughs> um, and then legal scholars have referred to the trial as one of the trials of the century. So, um, and you talked about the Federal Kidnapping Act. Yes. The Lindbergh, or Lindbergh Law that derived from this. But uh, uh, I, I'm thinking of something, but I don't, don't want to jump ahead. But I found it interesting that the the charges that and you'll say who the gentleman was, mm -hmm. but his charges that he was found guilty on had nothing to do with kidnapping. It was actually murder one mm -hmm. and yes, resulted to his execution, but had nothing to do with kidnapping. Yes. Well, spoiler alert, the Lindbergh baby did not make it. Yeah, but why wasn't he, why didn't he have kidnapping charges? Because the baby died? Or... Well, my guess, and and it's my guess because I haven't actually researched into that, are, are twofold. One, the Lindbergh Law did not exist on the date that the child was kidnapped. Okay. It didn't happen. It didn't become law till after. So, you know, <coughs> that whole grandfathered in kind of thing. I'm I'm wondering if perhaps they said, well, this didn't happen till after this. So law. they didn't have that law to charge him with, then basically. Right, and then the baby sense. didn't ever Thanks get returned the baby died and yeah. so anytime there's a death you're always going to want to go for the, the strongest, strongest charge, charge. yes going to die anyways from right. the death but yeah so as i mentioned it was a spoiler alert the baby did die mm -hmm. um and i i really didn't talk about what they found besides the note that night but there was also a ladder that was found um there was a homemade ladder that was built and it was collapsible the way that they had it built it was collapsible so it was easily carried but could still reach that second story um, where the baby was actually in the crib sleeping and the kidnapper actually left that behind at the scene it was still leaning up against the house when Wasn't they the got there the baby found close to the house Yes, the actually, body. the the body of the baby I think was I found four you and I miles about away. This before, but not on air or any type of show or anything, or maybe we did it for another website or something. But it's striking memory that we thought or we heard or one of the theories was that as they were kidnapping the baby, they dropped them. Yes, and in the you know what are we going to do type scenario, freaking out, they forgot to grab the ladder and yes. take it with them. Yeah. They, they had the baby who was injured, which I would assume from a fall would be crying, if not knocked out or whatever. Um, yeah. That uh, it was probably panic mode. But that I always found that weird that they left the ladder. I mean, if they brought the ladder, it was mm -hmm. portable. Why would they leave it? Right. So that kind of goes along with a couple of things as well. Um, the person who eventually is convicted for this... Um, 
says that he didn't do it, obviously. Yeah. But the the government and all of those who were um, looking for the conviction, they were adamant that he worked alone. Um, but history has shown that it doesn't seem that he worked alone. Obviously, the handwriting samples on, on the notes and things like that, adding more people later. But when, when this kidnapper came out of the window, um, part of the ladder broke. And so there was some splintering on the ladder, and, and, it, and it, a section of it actually broke. And so they think that what happened was when the ladder broke, he dropped the baby. Or somebody dropped the baby. Or somebody dropped the baby. You said he. I you said call, he. You're calling the baby it, and, 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 <laughs> and the, killer the kidnapper he. he. Yeah, I have Let's a be problem. Specific. I have a problem calling the baby children was it's, him. Yeah, it was a boy, as you can tell. But we I don't really have don't children. know who took the baby out of the house, right? And we'll never know. But so, in any case, they they <coughs> do believe that the baby was dropped when the ladder broke on them. Not you know they weren't prepared for that, and and the baby fell, and they think then that the baby actually died. Then do you have, or maybe I'm skipping ahead, but Go do ahead. you have the the? I'm sure you did the autopsy of the baby, but do you have what injuries the baby had? I do have what injuries the baby had. Um, there, to my knowledge, there wasn't a full autopsy done, um, but the baby did have um, skull fractures. And a hole in its head. Mm. Oh, so that would probably have been instant. Yes. Um, so they they do believe that, they know that there was a crack, there was cracking on the left side of the baby's skull, and that they, and they found a hole on the right side of the baby's skull. Now, the per, the, when they find the baby, and I'm skipping ahead, um, they find the baby. I'm sorry, you have this all well. I had it by date, but that's all right. Um, with you, but they didn't find the baby till May. Okay. Okay. And the kidnapping was March first. Yes. So they find the baby May twelfth, and it's discovered, as you mentioned, close to the house. It's actually four miles from the house, forty-five feet off of the roadway in a shallow grave, and it's found by a guy named William Allen. He finds it, and he's like, oh, my gosh, and he calls the police. The police come out. They look at the body. Um, one of the police officers... Was he ever considered a suspect? Um, I don't think so, but there were there were a lot... There were thousands of people who are considered suspects, so he may have been. Yeah. Um, he it's just, just wasn't weird a big... that you find a shallow grave 45 feet off the road. I like, agree. I it's agree. It's kind of weird. I agree. Know? We have a lot of those in history, though, where the bodies are found off of a highway... 40, 50, 60 feet in, and we're like, how did you find that body? Well, this is you know? why I don't go walking down weird roads <laughs> by myself. I'm um, considered a suspect. Anyway, one of, the, one of the police officers who's investigating says that he thinks that he accidentally poked the hole in the skull of the baby with a stick when he was trying to move it around. Um, kind of hard, wouldn't it? Yes, and that's what the that's what child death experts have said. They're like, no, um, especially a gentleman named Mister Butts, who is the um, North Carolina chief medical examiner. He actually specializes in child death, and um, he I looked have at to that. Say though, your notes are much better than mine. 
<laughs> I could be credit for that. Well, that's because I kind of, well. I'm like, this guy from Paris, the other guy from Russia, <laughs> he died. I don't know their names. Well, see, I don't want to forget things <laughs> when I go to do it, you know? I'm um, horrible at that. Anyway, um, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Butts, the, the medical examiner, he actually says that he disagrees, like you and like I, that anybody's you know, just poking around with a stick is going to be able to crack a big hole in that skull just by moving it with a stick. So he disagreed with that. He said that wasn't the cop that did that. Um, but he does look at it and he does, um, they, they all at the time, Butts is actually alive now. (laughs) He's a medical examiner. He was a medical examiner now, not back then. He's looked at it during repeated, um, investigations into this um but at the time when they looked at the body and they they did take a look at they did note the the skull problems and they estimated that that the child had been dead for at least two months which does put it back at the time of the crime Mm -hmm. um so in any case, let's uh let's let's jump back in time okay, now. I'm sorry. That's all right. We're gonna jump back in time. Um, March. Um, first they get the first letter. The sixth they get the second letter. The they have a series of notes in between um, where they're trying to find an intermediary. Uh, Lindbergh wants somebody to to take money to the guys or the persons the kidnappers and the kidnappers don't like who they pick that they want they want to put something in the newspaper for somebody to come up and be a um, intermediary that they both can agree upon whatever in any case on the seventh note which is on march 16th um they actually send with the note um the baby's sleeper so that they could prove, yes, we have this child. Because they're getting to the point where they're like, well, yeah, I don't know, maybe you don't have this kid. And so they send that as proof that they had the child. And Lindbergh did identify that, yes, this was my child's sleeper. Um, March 29th comes along, and uh, the nurse, the, the, the nurse, the child nurse, the nanny, miraculously finds the thumb guard for the, that the baby had on the night of the mur- the kidnapping and potentially the murder. Um, so it doesn't suck itself? Yes. Yes. Okay. So it finds this at the estate just suddenly. They've, they've searched this place for a month, um, but this nurse suddenly finds this. She's actually looked at um, as perhaps being part of this gang uh, throughout the investigation. That's and this could be why. There's, there's a storm going on. That's the noise oh, the noise you're hearing, hearing is thunder. Yeah. Oh, okay. 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 That makes sense. Okay. All right. Like, I'm like, what furniture? do you keep looking at? <laughs> Something's moving our furniture around. All right. So, um, <coughs> eventually, this guy named... Dr. John Condon. He's a retired school teacher. There we go. Here we go with this teacher again. Involved in, why are we always get involved in everything? Um, but he apparently was also a school principal, but he was now retired. 
And he absolutely adored Lindbergh. He was his idol. He was he just thought he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. I wanna be that go-between. So he puts himself out there to become the go-between um, with the kidnap between the kidnappers and Lindbergh. And both Lindbergh and the kidnappers agreed to allow Condon to be that go-between guy. Okay. Okay. So several more letters go along, and on the March 30th, the day after the nurse finds the thumb guard, they get the 10th note. And in the 10th note, we want more money. Again. Again, they want more money. So they went from 50000 to 70000 in the last. Now they want 100000 So they've doubled since March 1st. They've doubled what they want. Go ahead. Oh, I thought you were going to turn me off. No. (laughs) Okay. So they double this. And on uh, April 2nd, they get the 13th and 14th letter. Um, And by the way, Condon starts getting all these letters. All these letters are being sent directly to Condon. And uh, he's instructed to meet the kidnappers. Okay, so the so the baby's now worth one point four million dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, he loves getting those those money amounts converted. <laughs> well, it's hard to say. You say okay, now they want a hundred thousand. Okay, even a, even today, a hundred thousand is a lot. It know? is, but one point four million is a lot more, and and he was going to pay it, right? Oh, absolutely. He was ready to. He pay was it. ready to pay it. So on April second, um. Lindbergh makes sure that Condon has money. He got the twenty five thousand for that trip, but when he died, he was worth twenty million dollars. So it wasn't just that flight. I mean, he right. He had money. Other things, and he was an inventor and an author and things like that. So he had he had money. money. Yeah, he had money. Yeah. Um, For whatever reason, supposedly Lindbergh gave Condon seventy thousand dollars. Condon decides to take it upon himself, I guess, that when he meets with this guy, where they were asked to meet in a cemetery uh, in the Bronx called Woodlawn Cemetery, um, that's where Condon was told to meet meet me here, Um, he meets and he talks to this kidnapper one-on-one. He's sitting there on a bench in the cemetery with him, talking to him. He uh, says call me John, and I'm not talking about John Condon, I'm talking about the kidnapper, says, call me John. While he's talking to Mr. Condon, he says, call me John. They have a little conversation, and Condon gives the kidnapper $50,000. I don't know what happens to the other 20000 because supposedly Limber gave him 70000 but he, get, he gives the kidnapper $50,000. Of these $50,000, $40,000 of that was in what they call gold certificates. Now, gold certificates um, went out of circulation just a few years later, and that's going to play a big role in how they get their main prime suspect. But um, Condon is the only person who ever meets with the kidnapper, and he gives him this money. This money was recorded. All the serial numbers were recorded. The kidnappers specifically said they did not want sequential yeah. money. 
Lindbergh did not want that money, the serial numbers, to be recorded anywhere. He's just wanted to give the money and be done with it. They talk, the government, the police, they talk him into allowing them to write down all the serial numbers. That turns out to be a good thing as well. Um, but he didn't want uh, any of the serial numbers to be listed anywhere, but he finally allows them to do so. Now, um, as I said, he's the only one who... Mr. Condon is the only one who ever gets to see this guy that they name Cemetery John. Now, Cemetery John is described by Condon. He do, they do a facial sketch, you know, all that kind of stuff. He's described as being approximately 5'7", about 165 pounds. He has a really high forehead. He's got a really pointy chin and large ears. And something that's very important and will come up later is that he has a large fleshy lump at the base of his left thumb. So these are kind of some things that, hey, I, I am seeing these things as, as what this guy looks like. Eventually, on May 12th, as I said, they do discover the body of the poor baby it is deceased. It's just a couple miles away from his house, four miles away from where he was kidnapped at. And, uh, of course, the whole country goes into grieving. Um, they, they're just they're like, oh, my gosh, this is the worst thing that's happened since Lincoln died. Since Lincoln was killed, this is, this is the worst thing. Then we kind of go uh, a little bit on hold for a while. However, as I said, those um, bills that were paid to the kidnapper, the serial numbers were marked down. Those bills started showing up in circulation on the 4th of April, two days after that was given to the kidnapper. Those start to show up being used already. Okay. Now, all of the places that it gets used, um, all of the people who accept the money, it's always like in a store or whatever, a little mom-and-pop type store. And when they go to deposit them, of course, they have the serial numbers they're looking for. They know, okay, this person deposited this money. I'm going to talk to them. They go to these, these shop owners. All of them make descriptions of who gave them that bill. And they all match Cemetery John. They all match Cemetery John. And they're, they're using them in things like groceries, in theaters, and shoe stores. So I hate to do this to you, but uh, it seems to me like you've got a lot more notes there. <laughs> well, I didn't talk about the suspects. Yeah, you didn't talk the suspects. We didn't talk about the trial. We didn't talk about after the trial and that, that kind of stuff, the war and things. So... I think we're going to have to have a part do. We tend this. to do that a lot when I get excited <sighs> about things, huh? Well, I don't want people to have to download a two-hour podcast okay. on their phone and blow it up. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, okay. So let's, why don't we cut it here, and then we'll do a part do. All right, so we're cutting it with the fact that there's all kinds of this money that's being used. Yes. And everybody who's using it seems to match the description of Cemetery John. 
right. the kidnapper. Right. Well, the guy that Supposed- he met at the cemetery. Yeah, he was supposedly the kidnapper <clears throat> he met at the cemetery. Yeah. All right. So. Okay. Um, hopefully, you guys find this interesting, and you pick up part the, two. The part two of this, which will be out next week on Wednesday at nine o'clock. Um, so. Ooh, maybe there's some suspense there. Dun dun dun. I Who are the here. suspects? Yeah. Yeah, I see that happening. Anyways, if you have any comments, concerns, just think we're doing a good job or we're sounding like idiots, whatever you want to do, you can actually go to our website to untoldhistoryrevealed.blogspot.com and there's a form on there. You can send us an email. And we'd love to hear from you. Okay. Either way, good or bad, doesn't matter. All right. What? Nothing. You're looking at me like I'm forgetting something. No, no I'm just... Okay. Oh, you're ready to go. I'm okay. Just, I'm just right. trying to think of like what I can use as a spoiler to get them to come back and listen to the second part. We'll talk about the suspects. We could talk about the trial of the century. We could talk about you know how they... Should we tell them who got them? convicted? No. We'll no? leave that for leave the next that? one. Oh, you are What you happened are to Charles that? Lindbergh during World War II? When FDR kind of blackballed him, mm. our nation's hero got blackballed. Oh, say it isn't so. You yeah. can't, can you? It's a lot more, a lot more tragedy for this hero, but uh, all right, just not the kidnapping. Okay. All right. So catch next week's episode. So until next time. Thanks for listening. Listening to Untold History Revealed.